Welcome to Respeaks, hosted by yours truly, Rihanna Raymond Williams. This podcast aims to share a variety of stories and conversations discussing race, education, health, and so much more. Here I use my voice to create change in the hope that it inspires you to do the same. Join me on this journey. This podcast has been produced and sound designed by me, Hannah Ward. In this episode, I will be interviewing Rihanna about her journey. In this episode, I discuss my journey into sexual and reproductive health, my experience in academia as a Black student, and my current journey as an early career researcher at the beginning of my PhD. My name is Rihanna Raymond-Williams. I'm a writer, researcher, and social entrepreneur from East London. I run a sexual health organisation called Shine Aloud UK that uses creative media and peer-led training to empower and inspire young people to have better sexual health outcomes. To give people a bit more of a background on you, how did you get to where you are today? I started volunteering for a local sexual health steering group in my area when I was a young person. And that was an opportunity for me to kind of feed into the sexual health delivery locally in my borough. And it was an opportunity for me to also meet with other young people, kind of discuss and engage in topics around sex and relationships. And we were supported by two amazing youth workers who really took the time to understand us, nurture us, support us, empower us, and really just give us time and space to explore stuff around sex and relationships. From there, I built really good friendships and was able to develop really good professional and practical skills that enabled me to get a job. So we started just having like youth sessions and kind of discussions and debates around sex and relationships. Then we started designing leaflets, running workshops, hosting dropping fairs at colleges and universities. And then we did some peer-to-peer delivery in local youth hostels in the borough. From there, I then was employed by the Terence Higgins Trust and they employed me to work on a national chlamydia screening programme with young people. That was an opportunity for me to work on the front line with young people and really understand some of the barriers and challenges they experience when accessing services, particularly because we were an outreach service, which meant we went out into the community to places where young people were in comparison to expecting young people to come to a specific place. Some of those conversations spoke about the challenges they experienced, but also other issues linked to sexual health, such as substance misuse, domestic violence, peer pressure, and everything else, I guess, concerning their health and well-being. I then went back to study. I studied my first degree in journalism, and then I felt while studying, I didn't really see myself working for any particular publication. And it was a chance for me to really 
explore, I guess, writing and journalism, but also maybe think about where I saw myself in this creative world. Because I didn't see myself anywhere in this space, I decided to create my own magazine. And the magazine was an opportunity for me to kind of document the experiences of other young people in relation to sex and relationships, but also provide a useful resource. And then from there, it kind of developed into a company to where it is today. That was in 2011. And now in 2021, there's a company and we not only still do an online magazine or content, we do educational content, thought films, and also do international training um, sponsored by Erasmus. It's kind of like a two-sided story. One side of the story is that at the time I had a really good friend who was in a very volatile relationship. And she was actually referred to this group to kind of get support and guidance. It was meant to be, I guess, a space for her to kind of get the help and support she needed, but also maybe give her a different space to kind of move away from the toxic relationship she was in. And unfortunately, I guess at the time she was maybe too young and maybe didn't really understand the real dangers she was experiencing. And maybe the pull of being in that really volatile relationship was stronger than her kind of leaving. And as we know, like people who experience domestic violence or intimate partner violence, they don't maybe recognise the dangers when they're experiencing them. And it maybe takes some time for them to really understand what is happening and the impact it's having on their lives. So I just went along and supported her to attend this group. And then she didn't continue with it. And I did. And I guess it was just really moving for me to be in this space of other people and just kind of learn and understand other issues related to sexual health, but also understand that I'm not the person with the lived experience of this issue and I have to try and approach things differently. I went to support initially, but ended up being a part of change going forward. And I thought about what could I create that would enable somebody like her to get the support and access to services that she needed. This is a small excerpt from Dr. Venkatraman Chandramuli, who works on adolescent sexual and reproductive health in the World Health Organization's Department of Reproductive Health and Research. Here, he highlights the importance of sexual health education for young people, echoing many of the same sentiments expressed by Rihanna. I'd like to make five points about sexuality education. First is, sexuality education is often seen as telling young people to put on condoms when they are not really ready to have sex. Sexuality education includes three things. One is it improves knowledge and understanding. Second is it is intended to build equitable norms and values and to promote self-reflection among adolescents. And thirdly, it aims to build social skills to refuse unwanted sex or to negotiate safe sex when needed. It's a whole lot of things and it really is not just about sex and reproduction. It really aims to prepare young people for a healthy sexual and reproductive life and a pleasurable sexual and reproductive life and to prevent problems and to uh, obtain care if and when these problems occur. You could say that your experiences with sexual health and then also journalism have kind of merged. So what was it like Mm -hmm. studying journalism? And then after that, can you talk a bit about accessing professional journalism as well after graduating? It's really interesting because I didn't have the intention to go to university. I'm from East London, Stratford. I don't remember conversations about university happening in our school. I feel like by the wider school staff, these conversations happened with my friends, but it's only because their brothers and sisters went to university. The school that I went to is literally across the road from University of East London. And 
it just makes you think about you know so close yet so far away understanding progression and trajectory in academia and what you can go on to do if people let you know about it so I actually spoke to one of my really good friends and she knew that I loved to write but I didn't want to do history or English which is what I was kind of encouraged to do at the time I've only found out about my dyslexic diagnosis in the last I would say five or four years but I knew back then there was something different about the way that I learned and reading loads of texts just wasn't what I wanted to do nor could I manage because my short-term memory when it comes to reading is very bad and I knew that if I studied something like English or history I would struggle so much so I think I spoke to her about journalism and I think through her I found out you could study journalism but it wasn't something that was kind of promoted because when you're in school they want you to kind of take safe career paths. Journalism is a creative industry, it's non-traditional I'd say, non-traditional path to work or education. I kind of fell out of the love for writing because the place I was coming from was just free expression and, you know, letting my pen go wild on the page and not really having all these different structures to write in. So as much as I enjoyed the course, it kind of changed the way I felt about writing and exploring my writing craft, leading to writer's block for a long time, I think, actually, after that. And kind of really maybe just not interested in journalism because I felt the way in which I want to write they say this is not the right way. And also, I don't see people looking like me who are occupying these spaces. And thirdly, when you graduate with a journalism degree, they want you to have experience. But if you're studying your course for three years, as much as you have experience working on a university newspaper or developing videos or like audio content for your module, you don't actually have any like industry experience, which is really silly. You know, you've learned all the theoretical knowledge that underpins your practice, but you've actually got no experience in the field. So it was really hard to get a job. I was able to find a really good foundational course called Catch-22. That helped me to kind of hone in on the skills that I have, allowed me to get experience at Men's Health magazine. I worked there for about a month. And then I think from there, I kind of understood a bit more about how journalism operated on a larger scale. Before that, I think at the age of 16, I was given an internship at another magazine, which was really, really amazing but it gave me an opportunity to learn firsthand what it meant to work in a magazine. I was 16, but I was kind of pushed in at the deep end just to kind of get on with it, do what I want, write, interview people, upload content to the site. It was just such a freeing role that I could do anything and everything in this space. And I think that really gave me a sense of inspiration to see that, okay, this is how we're starting a big company, but maybe this is also something I could do with myself and my friends, which led to the magazine and everything else it's developed into now. We know there's issues around, you know, depending on where you live and who you're around, the community you grew up in, really determines what things you have access to. And I think there was just maybe a lack of expectation and almost support and encouragement from the spaces that I was engaging in. Maybe because, you know, we live in East London, one of the poorest boroughs actually in London. There's a lack of investment in the young people that attend the schools and engage in the curriculum there. I hope that's changed because we now have had the Olympics in our borough and that is meant to have been a huge cash injection. And I can only hope that cash injection has mobilised change and mobilised thinking and opportunity for young people in the borough. Did you feel supported in making the transition into university? I come from a family of people who've worked in healthcare. So my mum was a nurse. My aunt works in the nursing sector. Healthcare is kind of my background. And 
it kind of reflects migration to the UK where a lot of Caribbean people worked in like public services, whether it was on the railways or the NHS, supporting the infrastructure of the country. When we're talking about academia now, I've had to kind of find people to support me on that journey and find spaces that can help me understand what it means to pursue academia one, but also the kind of places in which you can go in academia. My friendship circles definitely helped me a lot because a lot of my friends went to university. And then from there, kind of connecting and speaking with other elders in the space, other Black academics who are doing different things and just kind of speaking to them and learning from them and understanding, you know, I'm a student now, but in the future, I might want to lecture. I might want to, you know, do other things in this space. I think people sometimes see university as something just to do that you do as a young person but they don't see that you can exist in this space for longer and you can kind of pursue a career as academic which I don't think is spoken enough about for a lot of young people. It's interesting because you said that for you you didn't really see black people represented in journalism roles and maybe in the wider media did you see that representation in academia in a way that you didn't in journalism or were you just more kind of pulled to one than the other? my colleagues on the course kind of saw themselves working for the independent or the metro or whatever publication it was but I never saw myself just doing one thing I wanted to write but I guess I was kind of doing youth work at the time so I also wanted to be with young people and do that kind of youth work so I never saw myself just existing in one space so I felt okay I can do journalism or I've maybe not really know what I want to do in journalism now but it doesn't mean to say I'm never going to do that again it could be something I'll explore later the academic side was kind of another thing to do on top of journalism. What I'm kind of talking about is having multiple streams of income, because I think I quickly saw that working in one sector for a lifetime isn't where it used to be. I think our parents and grandparents were able to just work in one job for the rest of their lives and be secure and stable. But, you know, the recessions over the years and like job insecurity, in-work poverty, all these things are really big deals. It's impossible to rely on one stream of income. I saw that very quickly. I didn't have the language maybe for what it was, but I was kind of setting myself up to exercise all the skills I had as an academic or researcher, as a youth worker, kind of as like a counsellor, supporting young people to manage their sexual health and wellness, kind of like as a community activist or community worker, I guess, or organiser, just really exploring different parts of myself and identity to ensure that whatever job I want to do in the future, if it wasn't journalism, I could do something else. Over the years, there has been a growing move towards entrepreneurship amongst the younger generation. We have seen young people start and grow a range of businesses and enterprises, many of which aim to tackle social needs such as youth unemployment, homelessness and mental health. Rihanna is part of the growing wave of entrepreneurs who have taken risks to improve their futures and mobilise many toward change. But the journey hasn't all been smooth sailing. You have so many successes and we can talk a bit more about those. But I also think what would be really interesting to talk about is what barriers you faced. The barrier of being seen as an individual. And I think you're almost going against the grain. You're going against what is traditionally what people do. Like you go to college, you go to university, you get a job and you live your life. So after graduating, um, I was employed to work for youth development and kind of encouraging young people to get jobs by giving them first-hand interactive experiences in the job market. In that job, as much as it was exciting and a different approach, I also very quickly saw that I didn't want to work full-time. I felt like a lot of my hours were not wasted, but I just felt there's so much more things I could be doing at the time that I had in this role. There's something about, you know, when everybody else is working full time and maybe not enjoying their jobs, but they just kind of get on with it. 
you can face a bit of maybe backlash from your friendship groups and resentment from people who are older than you because you have a different idea to them. So I definitely think being an individual and making people aware that I want something different for myself was a huge challenge and barrier that I faced in my family, much my friendship circles, amongst colleagues. They just didn't understand that I want to be different and this is not the only way to be. But I also maybe understand on the flip side of that, people were fearful of this new thing that I was doing and starting a business and you know, working freelance, there's a lot of insecurity in that. And you have to be kind of a fearless person to take these big jumps and big leaps. I'm not saying nobody was doing that at the time, but I think I'm of a generation of people who have gone on to create some amazing businesses and enterprises kind of reflecting the change of job market and the change in the way that we work. I think the other side was definitely investment. All my work for a long time has been self-funded until I received funding. And that is very difficult. It's hard. It means that you're working sometimes seven days a week. It's a real commitment. It could be really stressful because you don't receive a income from it. The income is the output, the happiness that you've done this thing, but there's no financial reward for it. In some ways, I feel like I'm reaping those rewards now in terms of the work and the opportunities I'm able to access. But I think between maybe 18 to 25, it was all just for the love and passion of what I was doing. It's not the money. Like money obviously is needed. Like we all need money to survive. But I feel that because I wasn't so focused on money, I was able to maybe freely explore the things I wanted to do. Before, when I was younger, I was happy to do these things for free because I was just happy to be doing it. I just had such a passion for it. It allowed me to explore different sides of myself. I felt I was getting that reward, the freedom, the self-development, the happiness. It was all these things in myself that I was being rewarded for. But now I feel that I understand that, okay, I'm doing this thing and I should be adequately paid for the things that I do because other people are and I deserve to be paid. We need to value ourselves. When I was younger, I think I didn't value what I was doing. It's just what I was good at. I was good at writing. I was good at organising people together to create. That's just what I was naturally good at and that's what I did for a long time. And maybe because I just saw it as, okay, I do this thing. I didn't see that you could be paid for it. But now, I guess, as I'm more aware of like the different job roles that exist and this is actually somebody's full time job that I'm doing just in my spare time. Why should I not get paid for the things that I'm doing? I'm good at it. Great. But if I get paid, I can only do it better. You know, I have more energy. I have more time. I can also bring people along the journey with me to help and support the parts that I'm maybe not so good at. It's not just about the money, but it's about legacy as well. Like what are you creating and how long can it live for? How is it being sustained? Not just by yourself. How do you think that your experiences have been nuanced by being a black woman and your kind of route to higher education and academia? I've always been self-assured and that's developed in intensity over the years. But I think I've also faced a lot of just people expecting certain things about me, my race, my class, my gender, all of these things. There's like negative stereotypes about my body, about what I'm entitled to, what I should be doing, what I shouldn't be doing. It's just been a reality that I've had to live and deal with. So in terms of funding, the fact that, you know, a lot of black businesses and black people don't get funded for their ideas. There's a lack of investment in this sector. There's a lack of strong leadership of, you know, people who are successful with businesses. Not so much now, but I guess when I was first starting, it was hard to find and speak with people who were just being successful at business because there's just so much that black communities are excluded from in terms of the business sector. Also because I was developing a business about sexual health, people didn't really understand or support it because there's particular taboos 
about talking about sex openly and that comes with its own kind of challenges. Over time, I've become more self-assured. You learn to meet or find people who will support your journey. So I think it's about finding people who really value you, value your work and see your journey going forward. What is your PhD about and why you're pursuing it and how the experience has been so far? My PhD will be exploring how Black women in the UK make sense of their sexual identity. And it aims to really look at how Black women engage with services in the UK that provide sexual reproductive health care. It also aims to look at the challenges and barriers they experience, and what is the impact of medical racism and colonial legacies in terms of how Black bodies have been treated in particular spaces and how that has impacted people to trust or build good relationships with health systems. It also aims to look at what support Black women are accessing outside traditional sexual health services provision and really explore contraception use, what pleasure means to black women, what kind of relationships they're having, what sex means to them in their lives. Just really speaking with black women, there's a lack of literature within academia about the lived experiences of black women, but there is an understanding that there are variations in different black and minoritized communities in regards to sexual health outcomes. It's really a chance for me to do a deep dive into speaking with Black women about their experiences of sex with the intention of developing, or I guess, informing how services are designed, but also what policies are created to better meet the needs of Black women. A lot of the course so far has been about, I guess, the formalities of just submitting like a research proposal, risk assessment, personal development plan which I guess is all the foundation stuff you need to submit to move forward. Whilst doing that, I've been attending classes about academic writing and communicating your voice in academia. It's really allowed me to think about the craft of writing. My understanding of academic texts or writing is that it's always quite formal, quite dense, quite boring, actually. It's really making me think about how do I keep my voice amongst all these other voices and still communicate ideas and my research, but in a way and language that's accessible. And it's really making me think about not just having my written dissertation and research, but also using film and audio. And that's part of, I guess, this podcast experience about really documenting my journey in a way that's accessible to so much more people. And having an impact, because I guess the idea is that when you go into research, you ideally want to create some impact. But that can be difficult when the community that you want to impact maybe don't engage in the ways in which you do. So it's really been a kind of shift of my perspective and understanding and growing um, in myself personally and academically in terms of the kind of approaches I want to take and the theories I want to look at. It's only been a month in and I feel like I'm really growing and developing so far, which is great. If you see yourself represented in spaces, you can think about being in those spaces. But I never saw anybody who looked like me in the spaces that I was engaging in. I always felt othered. I always felt like the kind of odd one out. And I never really knew what I could add because you listen to all these voices, you read all these different texts and maybe the thinking and the ideas are not in line with the thoughts that you think about. So I give an example of during my undergrad, I was studying uh, journalism and I remember we had a lecture on Franz Fanon of Martinique and the Caribbean and he put forward the concept of double consciousness and kind of existing in duality as a black person. 
And I remember having the lecture about it and then reading the lecture text. I don't think it was just Fanon's work. We were spoken about other people at the time, maybe W.E.D. Du Bois and other thinkers at the time talking about existing in duality. And I remember then going to my seminar, really feeling like I got to grips with his work and really understood it and could relate and everything. And I just remember being in my seminar and my white middle class male lecturer was almost arguing with me about Fanon's work just being nonsense like what is he even talking about and I just thought oh my gosh I really relate I really understand as a black woman I know what this means it speaks to me but he didn't have the range the capacity the respect for black thinkers and it maybe almost silenced the part of myself just when I thought wow this speaks to me this is really onto something this is really igniting my intellectual appetite it was shut down I think that happens often to black students we don't see ourselves in these spaces. There's ideas and theories that we really want to engage with, whether it be intersectionality or Black feminist theory. And these are really important topics and issues that we would love to grapple with, but just aren't given enough airtime. It just makes me think, I don't even know why this lecture happened. Like, what was the point of it? What was the point of having something so important to me as a Black woman in the module, yet you're really not giving it the space and time and respect it deserves? It just seems really tokenistic. When we talk about things like, why is my curriculum so white? Or like, why is my professor not black? Like in academic spaces, these movements and these ideas are great. But I think there has to be a real structural change and shift to really dismantle the toxic ideas that exist about black thinkers and black thought production in academic spaces. So yeah, no, I didn't see myself doing a PhD because I didn't see myself and the ideas I had interest in represented. But I guess over the journey, I've claimed that space and that identity to say, Yes, people like me deserve to exist in these spaces because we have something to research and talk about, but also seeing institutions differently. I think when I first started on the journey, I was going there to learn and engage in all this education. But now I feel like I'm going to teach them through my research. And it's about a different way of teaching. I'm now teaching them about these experiences, whereas before I felt like we were just gaining knowledge from them. I know that you're just kind of embarking on your journey with your PhD, but what advice, if any, at this point do you have for students of colour, racialized students, black students who are in pursuit of higher education like you, maybe feel a bit daunted by the fact that they don't see many people who look like them in those spaces? Something that's been really nourishing and healing for me on the journey is speak to elder um, academics in the space. Their stories, they're not all good. They're not all bad, though, as well. So there's learning from my elders that we need to do, for sure. That kind of intergenerational conversation is something that I value. It's something that has always been a part of my life. It's important that we younger students connect with our elders in these spaces about our research, about their journey, about the space they occupy, you know, because for them also it's very lonely and they have existed in these spaces for a long time. I think they really value speaking with younger people as much as we value speaking to them. I would definitely say also find community. It's really interesting to think about university as a concept that from the age of you know 18 or 19, whenever you start, it's meant to be like one of the most life-changing experiences that you have. And I think that happens for some people, some people who is catered for and the other people who is not, you maybe feel isolated. You feel like you haven't developed social circles and networks because the setup of university is not catered to you. And I think now going back a bit older, a bit wiser, a bit more aware of what I want from the journey, I'm now building those friendships and having these intellectual conversations that are really moving me and nourishing me. 
but I think that you know we need to kind of find community we need to find spaces that can support our existence I don't feel university does that or it didn't for me as a black woman it gave me instructions to do the job but it didn't develop my person and as a person existing in the world that is so important just before you asked me about did I see myself doing a PhD no did I see myself going to university no but I spent all my time in school. I'm still there now at 29. Like I'm still in the education system. School could be doing more, but I also understand maybe the constraints on schools. Depending on which kind of school you go to in the country, this changes everything for you. If there's an investment in your education, the type of education you get, the opportunities you have to access certain things definitely change. But it just needs to be more like the schools exist in communities but I don't think they are broadened out to the wider world I just remember there just being a focus on GCSEs and then there being a focus on A-levels and all these kind of qualifications but maybe not how they translate to real life there's definitely a disconnect okay like I've got these qualifications now but what do I actually know how do I actually feel about myself And I think that's another thing, like there's not a lot of support or investment in yourself. Like you can be academic all you want, but if you aren't well as a person, what's the point? And we know there's a high level of mental health amongst our young people, particularly now during the pandemic where, you know, there's some real stuff that's happening now that is going to create a huge impact in like 10 or 15 years to come. And we're yet to see the impact of that. But I feel like the school system is flawed and continues to negatively impact some people more than others, and that needs to change. The production and sound design of this episode was by Hannah Ward. Thank you for listening to Respeaks. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. If you did, join me again soon. You are young, gifted and black. We must begin to tell our young. There's a world of girls waiting for you. Yours is the Real love, there's a great truth.